Welcome back to Embracing Death. I'm your host, Julia Sheehan. Join me each week as I have a conversation with someone who has a unique relationship to death in an attempt to better cope with our own inevitable mortality. Newsflash, don't know if anyone told you, but one day we're all going to die. That is the whole aim of the show is to create a place for people to share and relate to others so we can face that scary thing called death with a little less fear and learn to embrace our eventual end. Today I had the immense pleasure to chat with Caroline Lee, who is a certified death doula out of California. She is one of many death doulas that will appear on the show. Today we talk about her journey as a death doula, but also how psychedelics can be used to ease the pain and anxiety involved in facing our death. Although this conversation is only an hour long, Caroline and I could have talked for days about the implications of psychedelic use in psychotherapy. But just wait, this episode is amazing. I, ugh, anyway, let's just, let's just get right to it. Hello, my name is Caroline Lee, and I am a death doula. I am currently in grad school to become a licensed therapist with the intention of doing psychedelic assisted therapy, um, hopefully to work with people who have palliative anxiety. Well, Caroline, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I have been so excited to have this conversation with you because I think what you're doing is next level in the death process. I think what you're going to be working on is going to be so amazing for the future of like death practices. So I cannot just wait to get into this with you. Oh, well, thank you so much for reaching out. And I'm that means a lot coming from you because I know that you work in the 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 healthcare and, and the medical world. So you probably know a lot more about dying in America than most people. So I appreciate you appreciating um, the the very niche line of work that I feel called to. Let's get into what you do and kind of your journey into that realm of of healthcare, death care. Um, if we back up, I think it's been a little over five years now. I am the oldest of six children and, you know, a very large family. We all grew up in the Midwest, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And um, as we grew up, we were all very different. We were raised to kind of like have our own perspectives on things and we were homeschooled so we all had these very creative and weird ways of viewing the world and interacting with things. As we got to be adults we all had a very different take on things and one day I realized oh my gosh if something happened to one of us and one of us would die suddenly without warning I would have no idea what that person wanted with their like their end of life wishes. I would have no idea because we're all so different. And then I had this, the next thought, the next step thought to that was like, oh my gosh, I wonder how people plan for stuff like that. Like if I have a sibling who thinks totally differently than I do and something happens to them, then am I just going to have to like guess with my siblings? And, and I, what I really want to do is honor what they would want, but I don't even know what that is. So I started doing a little bit of research and found out about end of life planning and found out about something called advanced directives, which because you work in the medical world, I'm guessing you know all about those. But they're basically things where you write out what your end of life plans are, what your what your wishes are in regards to, you know, if you are on life support, how long do you want to be on life support? Um, do you want to be resuscitated or do you want like a DNR, which is just like if my body's going, let it go. 
And there are all these very specific wishes that you can write down. And then in addition, writing down what you would like done with your body when you die. And so I found um, a death doula in Los Angeles who was doing end of life planning and who had created a an advanced directive and reached out to her. And then I got that from her. And then I went to my siblings and <laughs> was the very strange big sister that was like, hey guys, why don't we all get together and write out our end of life wishes in case we die suddenly and not, you know, so then we know what each other, um, what, what all of our wishes are. And I think my siblings are weird enough and used to my weirdness enough that they were just like, okay, that's funny, but sure. So that happened. And then from there, it was such a fascinating process and it really just got me realizing how little I knew about death and dying. Um, and it got me so curious about this whole world and this whole process and all these steps and layers that I had never considered before. Um, and so then I, as I got more and more curious about it, I told my mom that she should become a death doula <laughs> because she happened to be around people a few times um, in her life when they were dying. And I was like, hey, you should take this training and then you'll be actually ready and, and know what's going on if and when that happens again. So she did it and she was like, this is the best. You should, you know, like you, you need to know more about this. It's so cool. And so like I was slowly circling. It was this like very slow. Well, I'll just tell everyone else to do it first. And then finally in about 2019, after I had done tons of my own reading and research and told everyone in the world that they should become death doulas, finally I was like, you know what? I'm going to become a death doula. So um, I, I went through a certification process and started doing hospice volunteering and then just began to take on clients on my own and um, support people, whether they're making their own end of life wishes known, like with going through the logistics and knowing what needs to happen, whether they are actively dying. And so sometimes I'm sitting vigil with them in that process and supporting their family members with knowing a little bit more about what's going on. Sometimes I help family members after their loved one has died with knowing how to handle a lot of the logistics because again, like we just in our culture and in our society, we don't have strong death education and we don't have a very strong just awareness of, of what, how, what do I do? And, and really the goal for me is helping so that there can be more time and space to actually, actually grieve and actually be together and actually feel whatever other emotions are coming up rather than being worried about paperwork and legal logistics, being able to really be in this wild mystery that we're all a part of, that we're all going to go through. Um, and yet somehow this giant thing that's with us at all times is part of our existence that we just prefer to ignore. So that was a very long answer to your question, but that is my, my journey in five minutes or less. <laughs> of every person I've talked to when it comes to people working in healthcare, death care, and postmortem care, the number one thing that is always highlighted is how important it is to have a resource where you can have the someone help you plan things so you can actually be present in the experience because most people all they do is worry about bills appointments they're not focused on the on the connection of the loved one or 
enjoying that time that's left or spiritually connecting, emotionally connecting. It's always like this. We got to do this. We got to do that. And they miss this really crucial moment in, in life where they get to connect with someone who's dying. And, you know, I think you hit it on the head is that you create space where people can use you as that resource where you can help plan and just ease into that transition. So these families and these people can actually be with their loved one. It's so important and it goes so fast. One of my dear high school friends has a father who's dying at the moment. And even just as I speak to her and try to support her from a different state, I'm just constantly re-surprised at how many layers and things there are to check off a a to-do list. And all I really want is for her to be able to sit with him and hold his hand and ask him stories and for them to be able to look each other in the eyes while he's still conscious and to talk through his hopes for her and and her, her life moving forward when he's not in his body anymore. And yet, you know, she's racing around getting the title of the car that his name is on changed so that they don't have to have anything go to probate court. Like it's, it's, it's so good that they're doing it while he's still here because probate court is a whole, a whole other thing. But exactly what you said, I think being with our loved ones in the dying process is so beautiful and so important. And I really um, want people to be able to have that. I didn't even think of transferring titles for vehicles like there's so many things when it comes to like if you if your life was gone and you disappeared from the universe in 10 seconds from now all of the work that would go into just like picking up the pieces for your loved ones for your family there's so many things that people just aren't aware of and I think having you as that resource is like hey these are some things we can do while so and such is still here that will make it easier for you like I I just think that it's it's such an amazing resource that you're able to like help take some of the load off of you know people in this really stressful time well one of my my goals and intentions is to really build um an education space for people to know as much as they can um because like you said there's stuff that you haven't even thought of um and one of uh, a fun and big investment that i made last year was <laughs> buying <laughs> buying the domain deathed.com because i'm working on wanting to build a space for people who aren't old or who aren't dying or who aren't sick to really be like hang on what is what are some basic things that i need to know like for example for me i'm 36 years old i'm healthy i have never had surgery I, you know there are so many things that i've i've never been admitted into a hospital and knock on wood, thank God, all of, thank my angels, whatever your belief system is. When it comes to me, there's really no reason why I should be sitting here telling you that I have my end of life plan in order, but I absolutely do. I have uh, one of my friends knows that she's my medical proxy, which means that if and when I am not able to communicate to make medical decisions for myself, that she is the one that I've named. Part of that is because I don't want it to be on my family. I don't want one of my family members to be the one that is named. And then, you know, then that brings up a whole layer of tension within the family. I'm like, if this, if my friend says it, um, and she has to be the one to decide to like pull the plug on me at some point, then my family never has to talk to her again. If they're mad at her, if they're like, they, they have feelings, they never have to see her again. If my brother does that, then that's a whole other thing that all my family has to deal with for years to come. So 
I have my medical proxy. I have my, what I want done with my body. I have a Google, I have a Google drive called in case I die that I've sent to my partner and my brother and my best friend. Like, I just think there are so very many logistical things that have to be managed when someone dies. And the, the biggest gift that I think we can give our loved ones is to be uh, responsible with what we have so that if we do die without warning, that they can be free to just grieve and they can be free to just miss us instead of suddenly going back and forth between the courts handling probate and everything that you owned being wrapped up for six to nine months because you didn't think this stuff through. Our society has done a horrific job of structuring, you know, this, this whole uh, side of things. And I don't mean to go off on a tangent, but I do think it's a really, really profound gift, both to myself and to everyone that loves me to have that handled. I do think we should talk about how shitty the death industry is, honestly. <laughs> Great. Get me. Where do we begin? Let's get heated in here. Okay. So the people have been dying for millions, millions of years, and we have not done it any better oh no we're doing it worse we're doing it worse we're actually sucking more yeah so we yeah so go in tell me what you think are the really big setbacks of the modern at least western death industry where do we begin um i think the thing that i hear so often which makes me so sad is people saying that their loved ones were dying and that no one in the medical field that they were interacting with told them the truth so many times they will say, you know, I, ha I had a friend who, um, whose father died last year and she said, this was before we knew each other, I met her after he died. And she said, no one told me how far along he was in his active dying process. And I didn't know that he was going to lose consciousness. And he, and you know, that's very common for people who are dying of things like cancer or, you know, if they, if it's not a sudden death, often there's a period where they aren't conscious and she didn't know that that was going to happen. And so she is like, I, I didn't get to say goodbye. I didn't know that that was going to happen. I didn't know that was coming. And so I think things like that, that are so simple for someone who knows a little bit more about what dying is like to be able to slow down and look at the family and say, okay, here's where your loved one is in the process. This is how much time you might, you know, you might have anywhere from two to 10 days with them and be, a, be aware that there's, it's a possibility that for those last days and hours, he won't be conscious. So just use this time. There, there are things like that, that would be so helpful for people. And yet I think because so much of, especially America and the West is built on just fast doctors and nurses get in and out, see um, as many patients as you possibly can every hour. So you have a hospice nurse who's already completely exhausted, running in and out of every room or home to get the vitals, to write things down in their book and then run on to the next patient. And they don't have the capacity, the emotional stamina or the time to really slow down and be with the human that is in front of them dying. And answer their questions or communicate with their loved ones and let them know what's going on. So I think this huge death phobia that we have, which kind of ties into my work with um, psychedelic therapy, actually, because I really believe that psychedelics can unlock our fear 
of death and dying in a really beautiful and profound way. So many people have such a fear. And I think as we've gotten farther and farther away from being a strictly Christian, air quotes, nation, there was a time when we would say, oh, well, this person is dying. And then we would all say, oh, well, we'll see them again in heaven. And this is exactly what we know happens after someone dies. Now that that is less and less of what an uh, average, air quotes, average American would say, they air quotes, know is gonna happen. Now there, I think there is more fear around death and dying. And I think actually there was always fear around death and dying. And we may or may not have put some, I air quotes, know what's gonna happen after you die to kind of remove some of that fear. You know, that's a whole other, <laughs> that's a whole other. What you're saying is heaven is, is a way to, reduce fear? I mean, come on, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, you've touched on a lot of things here that are important to me. One, people dying does not look like it does on TV in the movies. They're not talking and then uh, they die. A lot of times they are they are coasting on the edge for a long time. They're not communicating. They can usually hear up until the very end, but you're not going to get to say goodbye as their last heartbeat is happening um, in, in a conscious sense. And that's a big thing is movies and television, they kind of romanticize death in a way where it's like one last goodbye, I love you before, you know, they kind of roll their eyes back. And people don't know what death looks like when your loved one is on a hospice a lot of times people are traumatized because it's the first time they're witnessing a human dying, which is the most natural phase of life. I mean, everyone that lives dies. There's That's the only two things humans have in common is live and death. And we're so terrified because yes, it can be a little jarring. Yes, they can look uncomfortable. Yes, it can be you see a human in a form that isn't upright walking down the aisles of the grocery store. And so we become afraid of that. And so culture, our Western culture that revolves heavily around religion has created this idea that, oh, well, death isn't the end. It's just, you know, life is just the test to eternal glory and heaven is the goal and, and death isn't scary because we go to this beautiful cotton candy paradise. And we've now there's people that are realizing hmm, that that's not really hit in the spot and now everyone is terrified because their beliefs they've they've not been able to create their own belief around what happens when we die i love what you're saying and i think you being someone who has worked around death and dying has probably seen it so so very much and i wish that i was interviewing you so i could ask you questions all about what you've seen um but what you're saying is so right so often the very 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 first experience that people are having around death and dying and even with around dead body you know a corpse is the very first time that they're losing a loved one so not only are they dealing with the shock of it but and you know learning a whole lot really fast but they're also dealing with the grief of losing a loved one and grief is i think one of the most intense emotions and visceral feelings that humans and and other beings actually feel and and go through so it's kind of just it's kind of like not fair if you ask me it's kind of it's kind of like we're asking each other to pretend that this thing like this thing called death doesn't exist because wow it's a lot to sit with it's a lot to talk about it's a lot it brings up a lot of other emotions and thoughts and logistics to handle and so rather than popping the can off of this whole thing of worms let's just pretend it, it doesn't exist and then all of a sudden bam it's there, all the layers are there at once, and it ends up just being kind of like a trauma. There's no real way 
to slow down, integrate it, feel through everything, deal with the legal side of all the logistics that we talked about and be like, oh my gosh, I now I can't call this person that's been a part of my life and has been so important for so long. Um, it's kind of too much for a human to go through and really feel supported and integrated through the process. And so that's really something that I think we are doing a disservice to each other. And I love that you as someone who understands this and also as me and the work that I'm doing are, are doing our parts as small as they might be to invite a different way of being with death and dying. Absolutely. And so the family members witnessing someone dying can be really scary, but also people that are now facing their mortality that are getting diagnosis where they're, they're facing the end of their life. They see the finish line and uh, they obviously have a lot of fear and uncertainty going into this phase of, of their life, which is it ending. And which brings me to kind of the, something that you touched on and how you'd like to work with psychedelics in the end of life. And I definitely want to dive like headfirst heavy into that and, just figure out what that's all about and like what those implications are, the benefits and just, yeah, if we can just move right into the the psychedelic stuff, that would be amazing. Well, at the moment, um, the, the only psychedelic that is fully legal um, in the U S is ketamine and ketamine is actually not even a psychedelic. So I have feelings about it being called a psychedelic that said, I have done a number of psychedelic assisted therapy sessions because I wanted to see what it was like and be able to understand what I would potentially be recommending to a client of mine. Ketamine is one that is being used at the moment and there's um, there's actually a trial happening. You can Google it or I can, I'm not sure if you have show notes, but I can give you a link to it. But there is a trial going on right now that is using ketamine assisted therapy for people who are terminal, people who are um, actively toward, you know, getting towards the end of their lives and looking at the, the results on things like depression, palliative anxiety, meaning palliative, meaning people who are, as I said, um, more dying, sure that death is coming soon. Obviously we're all dying, but those who have been given a diagnosis where they know that their death is sooner rather than later. And so ketamine is, is one that there's a lot happening at the moment, but the ones that I'm really excited about are specifically psilocybin, which is magic mushrooms. It's the compound found in mushrooms that is the psychedelic component. And it starts with a P, P-S, and um, people always don't know how to say it. So I, I just like to make sure that people know what word I'm saying because um, they're going to hopefully see a lot more of it. Psilocybin and also MDMA, which is also sometimes known as Molly. And those are the two psychedelics that I'm the most excited about with palliative anxiety and end of life psychedelic therapy. The FDA is currently in stage three with basically making them more accessible. Um, right now, both are becoming decriminalized a lot. Um, for example, psilocybin was just decriminalized in San Francisco last week. It's been decriminalized in a lot of other cities around the U.S., Ann Arbor, Oakland, etc. And decriminalized means that if someone has mushrooms on them, they won't be prosecuted for it. So it's not quite so far as now there's a store on the corner where you can just run inside like Many states have weed dispensaries that are really easy to access. 
with with psilocybin and MDMA, it's not it's going to be a while before we get there, and I don't know if we'll ever get there. We'll see, we'll see. But at least we're getting very close to it being decriminalized, number one. And then within the next two years, Biden has just said that there will be legalized psychedelic therapy for for probably both of these psychedelics. So that's what I'm really excited about. MDMA, for those who aren't familiar, works as a serotonin releaser in the brain. So basically when you take it, it's you can just take it as like a pill and it, it, you can take it in pill form and you usually get around a four hour experience where um, your brain has released so much serotonin that you feel incredibly safe and you feel very able to access really challenging emotions and realities, and you feel able to talk about them. And so there's a really beautiful episode on Netflix. There's a documentary series called How to Change Your Mind, and it's based on the book How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. Uh, but there's a four-part docu-series that just came out on Netflix over the summer, um, and there are episodes on both psilocybin and MDMA. And I highly recommend them for anyone who's curious about knowing more about these psychedelics, how they work, what they're being researched on, and, and who is probably going to be using them in the U.S. In the, in the next two years. So with MDMA, it's incredibly effective for people with PTSD because they are able to talk about what happened. They're able to talk about the really hard things that are traumatizing them and keeping them from being able to live the lives that they want to live. And the VA is in a, in a, in a uh, process right now of doing research with veterans that have PTSD and the results are just incredible. They're, they're finding that sometimes after one session, a person who has gone through the study is saying they don't even feel that they qualify to have PTSD anymore. So it's really a profound medicine, especially when done with therapists. I, I wouldn't recommend just going out and finding some MDMA and just popping it and seeing what happens, number one, because there's fentanyl in everything at the moment. They're just, America is having a horrific problem with overdoses. And so I would say absolutely under no circumstances am I encouraging people to just go find these substances and experiment with them. But with the support of a therapist, when in, in the clinical trials, they do it with actually with two therapists in every session. So there's usually two different people who are supporting the person who is working through things. So they have accountability and safety, and there's a lot of emotional support from these people who are in the room. And talking through really hard things, I think, is so important for people who are dying and for them to be able to talk about their fears, for them to be able to talk about their loved ones that they're sad about leaving behind. You know, the, the things that are coming up for them are so real and it's so complex and layered. And so often with my clients that I work with, they will say, you know, my family won't let me talk about the fact that I'm going to die. When I, when I say to them, I'm going to die. They just say, oh, no, no, no. Oh, it's fine. You're gonna, It's fine. Like they, they can't go there because it's too painful. And so for someone who's actively aware of their mortality and wants to be able to talk about it, 
I think something like MDMA therapy will be so beautiful. So in addition to MDMA, the other one that I mentioned is psilocybin, which is the mushrooms. And that episode specifically of uh, how to change your mind was one that I just wept the entire time because I just think it's such a beautiful, first of all, it, it is from the earth. So it is like a gift that we didn't even make. MDMA is, you know, human made, but psilocybin is a gift from the ground. And that episode specifically shows so many different people and trials that are happening. Um, usually, I think in that episode, it's with people who have cancer. And it shows them sharing what their experience is like, what their awareness is around their life, their death, their soul, whatever it is that comes up for them. It's different every time. But I think that that is just another space that is so intentional in saying, okay, come come to this space, come to this container, let's talk about the really hard things, let's have a, space, a safe way to talk about fears, grief, and really connect with the way that life and death are so connected and how one leads into the other and whatever else people get to experience. I think I'm just really excited about being involved in both of those becoming accessible. I absolutely love that series. I watched it in like one day. I just watched all of them together. Having been around, we're, we're millennials, so we've been around party drugs. We, we've seen all of that and, you know, all of the warnings when we were younger of ecstasy, which is like the relation. It's like a related drug to MDMA. It's like a synthetic version. Um, it's going to create holes in your brain. If you get, take acid or psilocybin, you'll be stuck in a trip forever. Or, you know, we've heard all of these bad things. Yeah. Dare, dare to keep kids off drugs. <laughs> yeah. Like the way that society has like made the, these things scary and dangerous. And yes, they can be. You never want to just like go head, you know, head first into a you know, massive acid trip, obviously. But I think that we were taught so many negative things about psychedelics and, and their uses. And now, you know, the research is coming out that actually the, the, the studies behind these things are really promising. And it's time to destigmatize the scary thing because, yes, it does alter your consciousness. Yes, it does connect you emotionally to your own self, which I think a lot of people are terrified to do because they don't want to experience their emotions. They don't want to face their mortality. They don't want to talk about death like you know, just like you were saying, you know, the people that you've worked with saying that I can't even say I'm going to die because you know what the family says? Everything's going to be okay. No, actually, I'm dying. Like, actually, I'm dying. It's not going to be okay. I'm dying. Like, there's, there's, there needs to be a conversation in there that is, that bridges the gap between I'm dying and everything's going to be okay. Because that's not, you're not handling it. I do want to talk about, you touched briefly on the mechanism of MDMA and how it helps with serotonin. Can you briefly tell me a little bit about psilocybin and how that works, um, you know, with the, like with the chemicals in our, in our brain? So psilocybin works in a way that also affects serotonin. So rather than just upping serotonin where MDMA is just dumping <laughs> layers of serotonin into your brain, psilocybin works by activating the serotonin receptors, which are in your prefrontal cortex. Um, and so the way that, that that kind of feels when, you know, if you're, if you're asking what are the differences between how these, how these substances feel in your body, where MDMA makes your body feel really light and oftentimes you're not really having super intense visuals, like your, your world in front of you looks pretty much the same, maybe a little bit more sparkly if you're looking at things because all of a sudden you're just feeling everything's easy and, and loving. So maybe it'll be like 
a little bit brighter or a little bit prettier, but for the most part, it's the same. Psilocybin is a little bit more psychedelic where things are the, the very stereotypical psychedelics that you would see in like Beatles covers of albums or, you know, the, the kind of cliche 60s vibes. It affects visuals. And I saw a video um, the other day that I really loved. It was talking about how psychedelics work it is in regards to these pathways in our brain that get gone over again and again and again, like someone who's skiing down a snow hill and the grooves get deeper and deeper. And so if you're having a thought again and again and again, it's the same as skiing down the same path again and again and again. And sometimes we get stuck or sometimes, especially with traumas or fears, these things just become us because we can't find our way out and taking um, something like psilocybin, which is impacting our brains and impacting the pathways in our brains. It's like providing a whole new blizzard of snow. So now that the, now there's all this new fresh snow and we can look at the, at the mountain that we're about to ski down and say, okay, I know I was over there and those, those grooves were really challenging. Those were getting more and more sticky to pass through and I, I didn't like how that felt so now I'm going to go over here and go this way and so there's just a deep connectivity that happens in seeing the way things are connected in understanding um, how I am a part of a greater picture and how everything is connected and I think it makes a lot of sense really because if you think about mushrooms and the mycelium network you know these mushrooms if you've ever watched the documentary fantastic fungi which is outstanding. Fantastic Fungi is another documentary, I believe, on Netflix, but it shows just how mushrooms are a part of this mycelium network underground, and it's connected to everything. It's just everywhere, and that makes sense that when we would eat one of these little things from the earth that we would understand how we too are connected to literally everything. It's really beautiful to see how these things, how these different things work. And in more of a clinical setting, like working with these psychedelics in a therapy setting, oftentimes you're taking them on, you know, in a safe place, like on a bed with usually a playlist of music in headphones or on your ears, and then like an eye mask over your eyes. So you're not up walking around, bumping into things, having weird trippy experiences. You're really just with yourself and with your own thoughts, your own breath, your own body, your own process. Um, and then the therapists are in the room to support and to be there to process and help integrate when you're complete. I think that's really cool. I didn't know what actually happened in like a psychedelic um, therapy. I thought you just kind of take them and you just kind of like bounce off the walls or whatever. Um, but I, I do think it's really cool that you take, you know, this, um, you know, we'll, we'll use like psilocybin, for instance, and then you put the mask on and you put the earphones in and you're having this experience, but it's kind of all processing through you. So you don't have this like external stimuli, like to give you like these different visuals and things. It's really just all created within you, which I think is a really important mechanism to rewire those neural pathways, which you explained as skis on a, on a, um, 
on a mountain, which was a beautiful way to put it because your brain, it's going to take the path of least resistance and it's going to be that pathway that usually is probably unhealthy unless you learn to rewire it or break that old um, pathway, which I think you were indicating that a lot of these therapies are helping people put that fresh blanket of snow down so you don't have to take the same path. You can kind of carve your own journey down the mountain. And I think that's amazing. Who would be taking these psychedelics? Would it be people who have just gotten a diagnosis? Would it be people like on hospice? Would it be people in the active dying phase? What what kind of things can we see in the future um, with with these, um, you know, treatments? I believe it was Aldous Huxley died on LSD. He knew he was dying of cancer and he couldn't speak anymore. And so he wrote to his wife. Um, and ask her to give him LSD and he died uh, tripping. <laughs> so, you know, that is a thing. Aldous Huxley, meaning the author who wrote Brave New World amongst other things. So that has that is possible. I think it would be really interesting. Part of me thinks that would be a really cool way to die. And yet part of me wants to be super, super sober. Yeah, but you know, so few people are, I'm sure as you know, so many people have a significant amount of morphine that they're using for pain and all sorts of different things that they're using to manage. And just hypoxia from your body shutting down, your your organs shut down, you become confused, your oxygen levels are low, you become, your your kidneys and liver aren't functioning, so you have these increased just kind of things that aren't natural. And so, yeah, at the end of life, I think it's pretty standard that you're very foggy, groggy kind of, um, you know, detached a little bit. Yes, yes, it is. It is good to name that and to have that be a part of education, um, which is also not to change the subject, but which is also why um, I'm a really big advocate for people knowing about medical aid and dying, because for some people, they want to get to choose to be conscious all the way up until the moment that they die. And sometimes knowing that it might take, as you said earlier, when we were talking probably almost an hour ago when you mentioned that sometimes death takes a really long time. Like the dying process can be very slow. And so for some people knowing that that could bring a lot of waiting, could be, there could be pain, there could be suffering. Some people, they want to be able to choose when their time is going to be. And so I think that people should have that agency to choose. And, and that I think is something that is challenging for a lot of Americans to sit with and it is currently only legal in 13 states although one of them uh, is Oregon and in Portland you can go to Portland to use medical aid and dying if you are not a resident so that just started in April of this year so I think that's another great thing for people to know is that you you can travel if that is something that is really important to you instead of suffering through this prolonged period of hospice and cancer and pain you can choose when to die which I think is amazing because it's one thing that we weren't allowed to choose we weren't able to say you know a lot of times it was just our loved ones holding on and really just kind of wasting away which I think if that's, if that's your thing, then absolutely. But a lot of people don't want to die like that. They want to die with dignity. Yes. I love you using the word dignity because I think that's what that's what it comes down to. Um, to me, it's not – we – in I think years ago, people would call it um, assisted suicide. Now we call it medical aid in, in dying because it's – the person's dying. <laughs> like they're not, they're not just randomly one day choosing to end their life. They are 
actively dying and they're just simply saying, I want to get to have a say in a little bit of what is happening and when it's happening. And I don't, I don't want to just be left in a room. You know, I want my family to be around me. I want to have a say in where it happens, when it happens. So um, I love that you use the word dignity. That's a really beautiful um, and important part of death, I think. Um, but yeah, going going back to your question about when and how people would use um, psychedelics in, in their dying process, I think for, for me, like there, there is no right answer with this. I think for me, I would say the sooner the better um, because I believe that the more, you know, let's say someone gets a diagnosis and maybe they're not even going to, maybe they haven't even been given a terminal diagnosis. Maybe they've just been told you have cancer, something really intense like that. And for them to be able to process how intense that is in a really safe space, in a really held container is I think a beautiful gift for them to have. And then obviously as, as it continues on, whether they find out air quotes, good news, or, you know, even if it's good news, they probably are still going to have surgery, chemo, radiation, layers and layers and layers and months and months and months of health related things that they're going to need to go through. And so having that support of a, a, a place to really go deep into what that experience is bringing up for them, how it's affecting them, how it's how their body feels about it. That's another thing that I just think, um, you know, in our Western way of being in the world, we are so connected to our minds and our thoughts, but we are so disconnected to our bodies and the intelligence system that they are. And I think our bodies are having, I don't want to say a completely different experience, but clearly like my mind would never wake up one day and be like, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a terminal illness. That's a great idea. But my body might have that kind of process that happens. And I'm not saying my body is like, I can't wait, but guess what? Like our bodies are here to die. And I really think that naming that and looking at that and having that be a part of my relationship with my own body, it means that as I get older, I'm not saying to my body, oh, your health is failing. You are bad. I'm saying, I'm literally here to do that. That's what I'm here to do. You are doing the right thing. So the more that we can be in relationship with our bodies and what they think and what they are going through, I think the more we can integrate our mind-body experience and not simply exist in this cognitive spin out of logic and, you know, thinking this, that we have this illusion of control in the world. Um, and I think that the psychedelic space is a profound gateway to really ask our bodies questions and actually hear them answer. We're going to see psychedelics used in therapy, not just related to mortality, but in all aspects with, like you were saying, PTSD, um, like someone with me who had you know, who experiences severe death and health anxiety with these like panic attacks and these intrusive thoughts. Um, I've actually contacted a ketamine therapy that's here in North Carolina that will be able to, you know, I, I haven't, I don't know what I'm going to do with it yet, but you know, there's options out there for people that have, you know, severe anxiety and depression and there's treatments already being used that have already gone through these trials that are already being used by people. My best friend is on ketamine therapy for PTSD and she is 
in love with it. She's like, this is the best thing I've ever done. Therapy, medication, nothing touches me. Like this ketamine just helps me process what I'm going through in a objective way without feeling that terror that goes along with those experiences. I love that you already know someone who's having such a positive experience with it. And I think that's my hope is that more and more of the people who are having these positive experiences that they will speak out about them. Um, because I think, you know, I was talking to my dad over the weekend and he, you know, is what was a kid in the sixties. And he thinks that I'm making a horrific choice with my life. He's like, Oh, you're getting involved in this world. That's just, everybody just loses their mind and they just go. And I'm just like, thank you for telling me how you feel. But it's so different than that. It's so different than the 60s cliches that, um, you know, we see when we watch Woodstock documentaries, there's so much more happening. And so for people who are having the really positive experiences that are changing their lives to speak out and say, hey, hang on, wait, there's there's a lot of good here. And yes, can we do it intentionally and carefully? Um, no, I'm not saying Google how to find MDMA and then just do it. Like, please don't do that ever. Um, but what I am saying is there are some incredible results happening in the studies that are going on in the US and, and other places as well. Um, and so I really just want to be an advocate for that. I want to be all about education uh, so that people know not just that they're going to die. <laughs> Obviously, I want people to know that and, and be really good um, stewards of their bodies and their possessions and their relationships, but also that they know that these therapies are coming and that they are going to be so helpful. They're going to change the future. Absolutely. I, I cannot wait until I get to hopefully experience some of these treatments as well. Just as someone who has been very open-minded with things that can help me like with meditation I'm not saying I've ever done psychedelics because I'm a nurse but if I were to have done them I would have maybe said that they were super beneficial <laughs> and have helped and have maybe helped my friend who did them in amazing ways and I can't wait until the stigma's gone the Ill illegality of it's gone and it's more widely accepted if we can drink alcohol every weekend at bars and we can toxify our bodies every weekend and it's considered normal why can't we take some mushrooms i don't understand it doesn't make sense to me we're going to destigmatize that we're going to get it mainstream it's going to take over no more ssris it's going to be the leading edge of therapy and anxiety treatments and depression treatments you heard it here i can't read the future but if i could that's what i'd say how has everything that you've experienced like, how has it challenged or changed or reinforced what you believe about death? That is so hard to answer in less than 17 hours. But I will say that there is the part of death that is the the literal, like, okay, this is a body that is not breathing the way that it was. There is a life force that is not a part of this body anymore. And whether we're talking about our most beloved animal that we has been our pet for 15 years or whether we're talking about a loved one, death is a life force that is no, like you can see it right in front of you. One second it's there and one second it's not. And it's this doorway, this existential doorway of mystery and like, wait, where did it go? What just happened? Oh my gosh. Um, and in, in that, that great mystery is something that I love to be a part of. To me, death is so much like birth. And I've been present for 
I think almost maybe 10 births, something like that. And they're so similar. There's this labor period. There's this like, you know, there's the before the moment and the after the moment. There's like life isn't there and then it is there. And, and I really see them as so connected in so many ways. Um, and that is this like wild mystery that I love being able to witness. And, and it's so incredible to get right up close and be like, whoa, there it is. It happened again. What's actually happening? And then there's the other side of it, which is the intense grief and this loss and this, it, this part that suddenly that thing, that, that mystery that we're like, what just happened, um, that that signifies now in our bodies that we we can no longer reach out and touch and love and talk to this person that's been so important or this, this, you know, as I, because I was talking about animals, this, this being that we, that meant so, so much to us. Um, and so I think the more that I'm with both, the more that I just want to make, I want to make space for both and for the complexities of it and for the reality that death is this thing that all of us are going to go through. And so we can almost like shrug it off and be like, what's so special about it? It's going to happen to all of us. It's no big deal. And the human part of us that goes, you know, that was my grandma and I miss her so much. And even though she's been dead for years, I miss her so much. And I would do anything to just hug her, hear her voice, um, hear her tell me that she's proud of me. Those things are so real and they can exist at the very, very same time. And can we slow down enough to make space for the complexity of it? Death is such a beautiful yet sad experience. And the way you were talking about birth and how death is kind of the reversal of that, it's kind of like being unborn. Like I was just thinking about how you don't remember, but before you were born, you didn't exist, right? And after you die, you might not exist. We're not exactly sure, but like it's a very similar thing within the middle is our lives. And so it's like these two tapering edges to like this existence. And it's, I, I just, it's mind blowing that we get to experience it. It really is. And I don't want to hurry my death along at all, but there is a part of me that can't wait to be just like, whoa, what is that even going to be like? This thing that like, billions of people have been doing for millions of years. What is that like? What does that even, what does that feel like? What does that mean? So um, in the meantime, I'll just be hanging out with you as close to it as I can possibly get, just trying to support people and love people through it um, and, and be here for the, for the loved ones left behind and um, try to continue to educate and advocate uh, as much as I possibly can. I love that. I love your journey. And I cannot wait to follow along and see how everything plays out for you. We're at our final question. It does not have to be about death, doula ship, psychedelics, or anything that we've already talked about. It's simply what is your go to mantra, piece of advice, or just something that you can leave the listener off with? My first thought is it feels kind of almost cliche, because it's just, it's just so obvious, but just, um, in, in just being with each breath, being with each inhale, being with each exhale. Sometimes when things are too much for me, I, I just, I just slow way down and I just say out loud as I inhale, inhale, and I'll just feel in my head. I'm like, inhale, exhale, because, you know, the most powerful substance in the world, you know, we can, we can talk about psychedelics and say, oh, wow, which one's stronger, MDMA or psilocybin? And we can have all these discussions, but really the most 
powerful substance in the world is oxygen. Because if you take it away, this this whole trip ends. <laughs> Whatever this thing we're doing is, is over. We're just huffing oxygen, getting high on O2. And that's, that's what our consciousness is. Hell yeah. Wait, okay. That's the tagline. <laughs> huffing O2 and we're high on life, right? <laughs> I love it. Exactly. Exactly. Well, that's, that's it. So I think when life is too much, when things are too much, or even when they're not, when they're the best, when they're the very, very best, like breathing in this wild substance that is making this whole trip possible. Um, that's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm here to invite you to do. <laughs> Hell yeah. And Caroline, if people want to connect with you, where can they find you? How can they reach out? Mm, thanks for asking. Um, my email address is not surprising. Ready? It is Caroline is dying at gmail.com. And so you can send me an email um, if you want to connect with me one-on-one. -on -one. And my website is agencyindying.com. Perfect. Well, Caroline, thank you so much. I will link in the show notes the How to Change Your Mind documentary and the fa Fantastic Fungi just for anyone interested. And if you will send me the ketamine trial information so we can link that as well. I want to give everyone every resource. And I cannot wait to have people hear your story. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It This was amazing. I Oh, my goodness. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I can't wait to hear all the other episodes. Um, I'm sure I'm going to learn so, so, so much in, um, in all of your hard work. So thanks for being an ally and bringing more awareness and education to this very real topic. Hell yeah. If you would like to follow Caroline on Instagram, you can reach her at howcarolinecarolines. I remind you that I will link everything we talked about in the show notes for you to check out. I strongly urge you to do so. How to Change Your Mind, the book and the docu-series, changed the way I look at psychedelics and using them to treat trauma and mental illness. Fantastic Fungi has never made me feel more connected to the earth. I will also link the ketamine trial that we spoke about. After all, I have a friend whose life is changed due to ketamine treatments. Caroline and I could have easily talked for days about psychedelics and their wonderful uses, and I hope she will come back on the show again so we can dive a little deeper. I truly believe that using psychedelics in treatment of mental illness is going to be standard in the future. The treatments we have now have been life-saving and I do not want to discredit them at all. But imagine if we could replant the tree as opposed to trimming the overgrowth. I cannot wait to see the future with these natural resources at our fingertips. I also ask you that if you are enjoying the show, please leave a rating or review on your streaming platform. It really helps us, etc., etc. If you or someone you know has a unique relationship or experience relating to death and would be interested in sharing your story, please email your stories to embracingdeathpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again so much for tuning in to Embracing Death. The more we talk about death, the more that we learn. The more we learn, the less we fear. And the less we fear, the more we can embrace not only death, but the lives that we still have yet to live. And as Dr. Julie Halland, MD, states, with psychedelics, there is this epiphany that everything is connected, that we're all tiny little beings on a huge planet. If you pull back and see the big picture, you will see that we are all one organism, interconnected, interdependent. We will see you next week.